Chapter One, Part Two of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One by Charles Mackay. Reading by Morgan Scorpion. Chapter One The Mississippi Scheme Part Two Thus the first cloud upon Law's prospects blew over. Freed from apprehension of personal danger, he devoted his attention to his famous Mississippi project, the shares of which were rapidly rising in spite of the Parliament. At the commencement of the year 1719, an edict was published granting to the Mississippi Company the exclusive privilege of trading to the East Indies, China, and the South Seas, and to all the possessions of the French East India Company, established by Colbert. The Company, in consequence of this great increase of their business, assumed, as more appropriate, the title of Company of the Indies, and created 50,000 new shares. The prospects now held out by law were most magnificent, he promised a yearly dividend of 200 livres upon each share of the 500, which, as the shares were paid for in billets d'état at their nominal value, but worth only 100 livres, was at the rate of about 120% profit. The public enthusiasm, which had been so long rising, could not resist a vision so splendid. At least 300,000 applications were made for the 50,000 new shares, and Law's house in the Rue de Cancampois was beset from morning to night by the eager applicants. As it was impossible to satisfy them all, it was several weeks before a list of the fortunate new stockholders could be made out, during which time the public impatience rose to a pitch of frenzy. Dukes, Marquises, Counts with their Duchesses, Marchionesses and Countesses, waited in the street for hours every day before Mr. Law's door to know the result. At last, to avoid the jostling of the plebeian crowd, which, to the number of thousands, filled the whole thoroughfare, they took apartments in the adjoining houses, that they might be continually near the temple whence the new Plutus was diffusing wealth. Every day the value of the old shares increased, and the fresh applications, induced by the golden dreams of the whole nation, became so numerous that it was deemed advisable to create no less than 300,000 new shares, at 5,000 livres each, in order that the regent might take advantage of the popular enthusiasm to pay off the national debt. For this purpose, the sum of fifteen hundred millions of livres was necessary. Such was the eagerness of the nation, that thrice the sum would have been subscribed if the government had authorised it. Law was now at the zenith of his prosperity, and the people were rapidly approaching the zenith of their infatuation. The highest and the lowest classes were alike filled with a vision of boundless wealth. There was not a person of note amongst the aristocracy, with the exception of the Duke of Saint-Simon and Marshal Villars, who was not engaged in buying or selling stock. People of every age and sex and condition in life speculated in the rise and fall of the Mississippi bonds. The Rue de Cancampois was the grand resort of the jobbers, and it being a narrow, inconvenient street, accidents continually occurred in it, from the tremendous pressure of the crowd. Houses in it, worth in ordinary times, a thousand livres of yearly rent, yielded as much as twelve or sixteen thousand. A cobbler, who had a stall in it, gained about two hundred livres a day by letting it out and furnishing writing materials to brokers and their clients. The story goes 
that a hunchbacked man who stood in the street gained considerable sums by lending his hump as a writing-desk to the eager spectators. The great concourse of persons who assembled to do business brought a still greater concourse of spectators. These again drew all the thieves and immoral characters of Paris to the spot, and constant riots and disturbances took place. At nightfall it was often found necessary to send a troop of soldiers to clear the street. Law, finding the inconvenience of his residence, removed to the Place Vendôme, whither the crowd of Agioterre followed him. That spacious square soon became as thronged as the Rue de Cancampois. From morning to night it presented the appearance of a fair. Booths and tents were erected for the transaction of business and the sale of refreshments, and gamblers with their roulette tables stationed themselves in the very middle of the place, and reaped a golden, or rather a paper, harvest from the throng. The boulevards and public gardens were forsaken. Parties of pleasure took their walks in preference in the Place Vendôme, which became the fashionable lounge of the idle, as well as the general rendezvous of the busy. The noise was so great all day, that the Chancellor, whose court was situated in the square, complained to the regent and the municipality that he could not hear the advocates. Law, when applied to, expressed his willingness to aid in the removal of the nuisance, and for this purpose entered into a treaty with the Prince de Carignan for the Hôtel de Soissons, which had a garden of several acres in the rear. A bargain was concluded by which Law became the purchaser of the hotel at an enormous price, the Prince reserving to himself the magnificent gardens as a new source of profit. They contained some fine statues and several fountains, and were altogether laid out with much taste. As soon as Law was installed in the new abode, an edict was published, forbidding all persons to buy or sell stock anywhere but in the gardens of the Hotel de Soissons. In the midst, among the trees, about five hundred small tents and pavilions were erected, for the convenience of the stock-jobbers. Their various colours, the gay ribbons and banners which floated from them, the busy crowds which passed continually in and out, the incessant hum of voices, the noise, the music, and the strange mixture of business and pleasure on the countenances of the throng, all combined to give the place an air of enchantment that quite enraptured the Parisians. The Prince de Carignan made enormous profits while the delusion lasted. Each tent was let at the rate of five hundred livres a month, and, as there were at least five hundred of them, his monthly revenue from this source alone must have amounted to 250,000 livres, or upwards of 10,000 pounds sterling. The honest old soldier, Marshal Villard, was so vexed to see the folly which had smitten his countrymen, that he never could speak with temper on the subject. Passing one day through the Place Vendôme in his carriage, the choleric gentleman was so annoyed at the infatuation of the people, that he abruptly ordered his coachman to stop, and, putting his head out of the couch window, harangued them for full half an hour on their disgusting avarice. This was not a very wise proceeding on his part. Hisses and shouts of laughter resounded from every side, and jokes without number were aimed at him. There being at last strong symptoms that something more tangible was flying through the air in the direction of his head, the marshal was glad to drive on. He never again repeated the experiment. Two sober, quiet, and philosophic men of letters— Monsieur de la Motte and the Abbé Terrasson congratulated each other that they, at least, were free from this strange infatuation. A few days afterwards, as the worthy Abbé was coming out of the Hôtel de Soissons, whither he had gone to buy shares in the Mississippi, whom should he see but his friend la Motte entering for the same purpose? "'Ha!' said the Abbé, smiling. "'Is that you?' "'Yes,' 
said Lamotte, pushing past him as fast as he was able. And can that be you? The next time the two scholars met, they talked of philosophy, of science, and of religion, but neither had the courage for a long time to breathe one syllable about the Mississippi. At last, when it was mentioned, they agreed that a man ought never to swear against his doing any one thing, and that there was no sort of extravagance of which even a wise man was not capable. During this time, Law, the new Plutus, had become all at once the most important personage of the state. The antechamber of the regent were forsaken by the courtiers, peers, judges, and bishops thronged to the Hotel de Soissons, officers of the army and navy, ladies of title and fashion, and every one to whom hereditary rank or public employ gave a claim to precedence, were to be found waiting in his antechambers to beg for a portion of his India stock. Law was so pestered that he was unable to see one-tenth part of the applicants, and every manoeuvre that ingenuity could suggest was employed to gain access to him. Peers, whose dignity would have been outraged if the regent had made them wait half an hour for an interview, were content to wait six hours for the chance of seeing Monsieur Law. Enormous fees were paid to his servants, if they would merely announce their names. Ladies of rank employed the blandishments of their smiles for the same object, but many of them came day after day for a fortnight before they could obtain an audience. When Law accepted an invitation, he was sometimes so surrounded by ladies, all asking to have their names put down in his lists as shareholders in the new stock, that in spite of his well-known and habitual gallantry, he was obliged to tear himself away par force. The most ludicrous stratagems were employed to have an opportunity of speaking to him. One lady, who had striven in vain during several days, gave up in despair all attempts to see him at his own house, but ordered her coachman to keep a strict watch whenever she was out in her carriage, and if he saw Mr. Law coming, to drive against a post and upset her. The coachman promised obedience, and for three days the lady was driven incessantly through the town, praying inwardly for the opportunity to be overturned. At last she espied Mr. Law, and pulling the string, called out to the coachman, "'Upset us now, for God's sake, upset us now!' The coachman drove against a post, the lady screamed, the coach was overturned, and Law, who had seen the accident, hastened to the spot to render assistance. The cunning dame was led into the Hotel de Soissons, where she soon thought it advisable to recover from her fright, and after apologising to Mr. Law, confessed her stratagem. Law smiled, and entered the lady in his books as the purchaser of a quantity of India stock. Another story is told of a Madame de Boucher, who, knowing that Mr. Law was at dinner at a certain house, proceeded thither in her carriage and gave the alarm of fire. The company started from the table and Law among the rest, but seeing one lady making all haste into the house towards him while everybody else was scampering away, he suspected the trick and ran off in another direction. Many other anecdotes are related, which, even though they may be a little exaggerated, are nevertheless worth preserving as showing the spirit of that singular period. Note 7. The curious reader may find an anecdote of the eagerness of the French ladies to retain law in their company, which will make him blush or smile, according as he happens to be very modest or the reverse. It is related in the letters of Madame Charlotte Elizabeth de Bavière, Duchess of Orléans, Volume 2, page 274. End of Note 7. The regent was one day mentioning, in the presence of D'Argenson, the Abbé Dubois, and some other persons, that he was desirous of deputing some lady, of the rank at least of a duchess, to attend upon his daughter at Modena. But, added he, I do not exactly know where to find one. 
"'No,' replied one, in affected surprise. "'I can tell you where to find every duchess in France. "'You have only to go to Mr. Law's, "'and you will see them every one in his antechamber.' "'Monsieur de Chirac, a celebrated physician, "'had bought stock at an unlucky period, "'and was very anxious to sell out. "'Stock, however, continued to fall for two or three days, "'much to his alarm. "'His mind was filled with the subject.' when he was suddenly called upon to attend a lady who imagined herself unwell. He arrived, was shown upstairs, and felt the lady's pulse. "'It falls, it falls, good God, it falls continually,' said he musingly, while the lady looked up in his face, all anxiety for his opinion. "'Oh, Monsieur de Chirac,' said she, starting to her feet and ringing the bell for assistance, "'I am dying, I am dying, it falls, it falls, it falls.' "'What falls?' inquires the doctor in amazement. "'My pulse, my pulse,' said the lady. "'I must be dying.' "'Calm your apprehensions, my dear madame,' said Monsieur de Chirac. "'I was speaking of the stocks. "'The truth is, I have been a great loser, "'and my mind is so disturbed, "'I hardly know what I have been saying.' "'The price of shares sometimes rose ten or twenty per cent "'in the course of a few hours, "'and many persons in the humbler walks of life, "'who had risen poor in the morning, "'went to bed in affluence.' An extensive holder of stock, being taken ill, sent his servant to sell 250 shares, at 8,000 livres each, the price at which they were then quoted. The servant went, and on his arrival in the Jardin de Soissons, found that in the interval the price had risen to 10,000 livres. The difference of 2,000 livres on the 250 shares, amounting to 500,000 livres, or 20,000 pounds sterling, he very coolly transferred to his own use, and giving the remainder to his master, set out the same evening for another country. Law's coachman in a very short time made money enough to set up a carriage of his own, and requested permission to leave his service. Law, who esteemed the man, begged of him as a favour that he would endeavour before he went to find a substitute as good as himself. The coachman consented, and in the evening brought two of his former comrades, telling Mr. Law to choose between them, and he would take the other. Cookmaids and footmen were now and then as lucky, and in the full-blown pride of their easily acquired wealth, made the most ridiculous mistakes. Preserving in the language and manners of their old, with the finery of their new station, they afforded continual subjects for the pity of the sensible, the contempt of the sober, and the laughter of everybody. But the folly and meanness of the higher ranks of society were still more disgusting. One instance alone, related by the Duke de Saint-Simon, will show the unworthy avarice which have infected the whole of society. A man of the name of André, without character or education, had, by a series of well-timed speculations in Mississippi bonds, gained enormous wealth in an incredibly short space of time. As Saint-Simon expresses it, he had amassed mountains of gold. As he became rich, he grew ashamed of the lowness of his birth, and anxious above all things to be allied to nobility. He had a daughter, an infant of only three years of age and he opened a negotiation with the aristocratic and needy family of Doyce, that his child should, upon certain conditions, marry a member of that house. The Marquis Doyce, to his shame, consented, and promised to marry her himself on her attaining the age of twelve, if the father would pay him down the sum of a hundred thousand crowns, and twenty thousand livres every year until the celebration of the marriage. The Marquis was himself in his thirty-third year. The scandalous bargain was duly signed and sealed, the stock-jobber, furthermore, agreeing to settle upon his daughter, on the marriage-day, a fortune of several millions. 
The Duke of Branca, the head of the family, was present throughout the negotiation and shared in all the profits. Saint-Simon, who treats the matter with the levity becoming what he thought so good a joke, adds that people did not spare their animadversions on this beautiful marriage, and further informs us that the project fell to the ground some months afterwards by the overthrow of law and the ruin of the ambitious Monsieur André. It would appear, however, that the noble family never had the honesty to return the hundred thousand crowns. Amid events like these, which, humiliating though they be, partake largely of the ludicrous, others occurred of a more serious nature. Robberies in the streets were of daily occurrence, in consequence of the immense sums in paper which people carried about with them. Assassinations were also frequent. One case in particular fixed the attention of the whole of France, not only on account of the enormity of the offence, but of the rank and high connections of the criminal. The Count d'Orne, a younger brother of the Prince d'Orne, and related to the noble families of d'Arenberg, de Ligne, and de Montmorency, was a young man of dissipated character, extravagant to a degree, and unprincipled as he was extravagant. In connection with two other young men as reckless as himself, named Mille, a Piedmontese captain, and one d'Estaing or Lestang, a Fleming, he formed a design to rob a very rich broker, who was known, unfortunately for himself, to carry great sums about his person. The Count pretended a desire to purchase of him a number of shares in the Company of the Indies, and for that purpose appointed to meet him in a cabaret, or low public house, in the neighbourhood of the Place Vendôme. The unsuspecting broker was punctual to his appointment. So were the Count Don and his two associates, whom he introduced as his particular friends. After a few moments' conversation, the Count Don suddenly sprang upon his victim and stabbed him three times in the breast with a ponoir. The man fell heavily to the ground, and while the Count was employed in rifling his portfolio of bonds in the Mississippi and Indian schemes to the amount of one hundred thousand crowns, Mille, the Piedmontese, stabbed the unfortunate broker again and again to make sure of his death. But the broker did not fall without his struggle, and his cries brought the people of the cabaret to his assistance. Lestang, the other assassin, who had been sent to keep watch at a staircase, sprang from a window and escaped. But Mille and the Count d'Orne were seized in the very act. The crime, committed in open day and in so public a place as a cabaret, filled Paris with consternation. The trial of the assassins commenced on the following day, and the evidence being so clear, they were both found guilty and condemned to be broken alive on the wheel. The noble relatives of the Count d'Orne absolutely blocked up the antechambers of the regent, praying for mercy on the misguided youth and alleging that he was insane. The regent avoided them for as long as possible, being determined that, in a case so atrocious, justice should take its course. But the importunity of these influential suitors was not to be overcome so silently, and they at last forced themselves into the presence of the regent, and prayed him to save their house the shame of a public execution. They hinted that the princes d'Orne were allied to the illustrious family of Orléans, and added that the regent himself would be disgraced if a kinsman of his should die by the hands of a common executioner. The regent, to his credit, was proof against all their solicitations, and replied to their last argument in the words of Corneille, Le crime fait la honte, et non pas les chauffons, adding that whatever shame there might be in the punishment he would very willingly share with the other relatives. Day after day they renewed their entreaties, but always with the same result. At last they thought that if they could interest the Duc de Saint-Simon in their favour, a man for whom the regent felt sincere esteem, they might succeed in their object. 
the duke, a thorough aristocrat, was as shocked as they were that a noble assassin should die by the same death as a plebeian felon, and represented to the regent the impolicy of making enemies of so numerous, wealthy, and powerful a family. He urged, too, that in Germany, where the family of Dauenberg had large possessions, it was the law that no relative of a person broken on the wheel could succeed to any public office or employ until a whole generation had passed away. For this reason he thought the punishment of the guilty count might be transmuted into beheading, which was considered all over Europe as much less infamous. The regent was moved by this argument, and was about to consent, when Law, who felt particularly interested in the fate of the murdered man, confirmed him in his former resolution to let the law take its course. The relatives of Dorn were now reduced to the last extremity. The Prince de Robac Montmorency, despairing of other methods, found means to penetrate into the dungeon of the criminal, and offering a cup of poison, implored him to save them from disgrace. The Count Dorn turned away his head, and refused to take it. Montmorency pressed him once more, and losing all patience at his continued refusal, turned on his heel, and exclaiming, Die then, as thou wilt, mean-spirited wretch, thou art fit only to perish by the hands of the hangman, left him to his fate. De Horn himself petitioned the regent that he might be beheaded, but Law, who exercised more influence over his mind than any other person, with the exception of the notorious Abbé Dubois, his tutor, insisted that he could not in justice succumb to the self-interested views of the dawn. The regent had from the first been of the same opinion, and within six days after the commission of their crime, dawn and Mille were broken on the wheel in the Place de Greve. The other assassin, Lestang, was never apprehended. This prompt and severe justice was highly pleasing to the populace of Paris. Even Monsieur de Cancampois, as they called law, came in for a share of the approbation for having induced the regent to show no favour to a patrician. But the number of robberies and assassinations did not diminish. No sympathy was shown for rich jobbers when they were plundered. The general laxity of public morals, conspicuous enough before, was rendered still more so by the rapid pervasion of the middle classes, who had hitherto remained comparatively pure between the open vices of the class above and the hidden crimes of the class below them. The pernicious love of gambling diffused itself through society, and bore all public and nearly all private virtue before it. For a time, while confidence lasted, an impetus was given to trade which could not fail to be beneficial. In Paris especially the good results were felt. Strangers flocked into the capital from every part, bent not only upon making money, but on spending it. The Duchess of Orléans, mother of the regent, computes the increase of the population during this time, from the great influx of strangers from all parts of the world, at least 305,000 souls. The housekeepers were obliged to make up beds in garrets, kitchens, and even stables, for the accommodation of lodgers, and the town was so full of carriages and vehicles of every description that they were obliged, in the principal streets, to drive at a foot-pace for fear of accidents. The looms of the country worked with unusual activity to supply rich laces, silks, broadcloth and velvets, which, being paid for in abundant paper, increased in price fourfold. Provisions shared the general advance. Bread, meat and vegetables were sold at prices greater than had ever before been known, while the wages of labour rose in exactly the same proportion. The artisan, who formerly gained fifteen sous per diem, now gained sixty. New houses were built in every direction. 
an illusory prosperity shone over the land and so dazzled the eyes of the whole nation that none could see the dark cloud on the horizon announcing the storm that was too rapidly approaching law himself the magician whose wand had wrought so surprising a change shared of course in the general prosperity his wife and daughters were courted by the highest nobility and their alliance sought by the heirs of ducal and princely houses he bought two splendid estates in different parts of france and entered into negotiations with the family of the duke de sully for the purchase of the marquisate of rosny his religion being an obstacle to his advancement the regent promised if he would publicly conform to the catholic faith to make him comptroller general of the finances law who had no more real religion than any other professed gambler readily agreed and was confirmed by the abbe de tanson in the cathedral of melon in the presence of a great crowd of spectators note eight the following squib was circulated on the occasion point de temps zélé seraphique malheureuse abbe de tanson depuis que law est catholique tous les royaumes est capuchin thus somewhat weakly and paraphrastically rendered by justin sand in his translation of the memoirs of louis the fifteenth tanson a curse on thy seraphic zeal which by persuasion hath contrived the means to make the scotchman at our altars kneel since which we all are poor as capuchine on the following day he was elected honorary churchwarden of the parish of saint roche upon which occasion he made it a present of the sum of five hundred thousand livres his charities always magnificent were not always so ostentatious he gave away great sums privately and no tale of real distress ever reached his ears in vain at this time he was by far the most influential person of the state the duke of orleans had so much confidence in his sagacity and the success of his plans that he always consulted him upon every matter of moment he was by no means unduly elevated by his prosperity but remained the same simple affable sensible man that he had shown himself in adversity his gallantry which was always delightful to the fair objects of it was of a nature so kind so gentlemanly and so respectful that not even a lover could have taken offence at it if upon any occasion he showed any symptoms of haughtiness it was to the cringing nobles who lavished their adulation upon him till it became fulsome he often took pleasure in seeing how long he could make them dance attendance upon him for a single favour to such of his own countrymen as by chance visited paris and sought an interview with him he was on the contrary all politeness and attention when archibald campbell earl of islay and afterwards duke of argyle called upon him in the place vendome he had to pass through an antechamber crowded with persons of the first distinction all anxious to see the great financier and have their names put down as first on the list of some new subscription law himself was quietly sitting in his library writing a letter to the gardener at his paternal estate of lauriston about the planting of some cabbages the earl stayed for a considerable time played a game of piquet with his countryman and left him charmed with his ease good sense and good breeding among the nobles who by means of the public credulity at this time gained some sufficient to repair their ruined fortunes may be mentioned the names of the duke de bourbon de guiche de la force de chaune and d'anton the marshal d'astray the princes de rohan de poix and de leon the duke de la force gained considerable sums not only by jobbing in the stocks but in dealing in porcelain spices etc it was debated for a length of time in the parliament of paris whether he had not in his quality of spice merchant forfeited his rank in the peerage 
it was decided in the negative. A caricature of him was made, dressed as a street porter, carrying a large bale of spices on his back with the inscription, Admire la Force. The Duc de Bourbon, son of Louis XIV by Madame de Montespan, was particularly fortunate in his speculations in Mississippi paper. He rebuilt the royal residence of Chantilly in a style of unwanted magnificence, and being passionately fond of horses, he erected a range of stables, which were long renowned throughout Europe, and imported a hundred and fifty of the finest races from England to improve the breed in France. He bought a large extent of country in Picardy, and became possessed of nearly all the valuable lands lying between the Oise and the Somme. When fortunes such as these were gained, it is no wonder that law should have been almost worshipped by the mercurial population. Never was monarch more flattered than he was. All the small poets and literateurs of the day poured floods of adulation upon him. According to them he was the saviour of the country, the tutelary divinity of France. Wit was in all his words, goodness in all his looks, and wisdom in all his actions. So great a crowd followed his carriage whenever he went abroad that the regent sent him a troop of horse as his permanent escort to clear the streets before him. It was remarked at this time that Paris had never before been so full of objects of elegance and luxury. Statues, pictures, and tapestries were imported in great quantities from foreign countries and found a ready market. All those pretty trifles in the way of furniture and ornament which the French excel in manufacturing were no longer the exclusive playthings of the aristocracy, but were to be found in abundance in the houses of traders and the middle classes in general. Jewellery of the most costly description was brought to Paris as the most favourable mart, among the rest, the famous diamond bought by the regent and called by his name, and which long adorned the crown of France. It was purchased for the sum of two million of livres, under circumstances which show that the regent was not so great a gainer as some of his subjects by the impetus which trade had received. When the diamond was first offered to him, he refused to buy it, although he desired above all things to possess it alleging as his reason that his duty to the country he governed would not allow him to spend so large a sum of the public money for a mere jewel. This valid and honourable excuse threw all the ladies of the court into alarm, and nothing was heard for some days but expressions of regret that so rare a gem should be allowed to go out of France, no private individual being rich enough to buy it. The regent was continually importuned about it, but all in vain until the Duc de Saint-Simon, who with all his ability was something of a twaddler, undertook the weighty business. His entreaties being seconded by law, the good-natured regent gave his consent, leaving to law's ingenuity to find the means to pay for it. The owner took security for the payment of the sum of two million of livres within a stated period, receiving in the meantime the interest of five per cent upon that amount, and being allowed, besides, all the valuable clippings of the gem. Saint-Simon, in his memoir, relates with no little complacency his share in the transaction. After describing the diamond to be as large as a green gauge, of a form nearly round, perfectly white and without flaw, and weighing more than five hundred grains, he concludes with a chuckle by telling the world that he takes great credit to himself for having induced the regent to make so illustrious a purchase. In other words, he was proud that he had induced him to sacrifice his duty, and buy a bauble for himself at an extravagant price out of the public money. End of chapter 1, part 2